Hello, good afternoon. It seems like ages since I've done one of these. I have been so, so busy. So I'm apologies that you haven't seen me for a while, but I'm back speaking to John this afternoon about all things guitar, sleeper, Bob Dylan, um, book writing. Who knows? We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, it's a man and his laptop. <laughs> I need to get going, Mel. See you later. Oh, the sights of London there in the background of that video. Not too far from where you are, John. Yes, Brighton. Sort of south yeah. London, really. South yeah. London and a bit. Yeah, and, and, a, and a bit. Yeah. Uh, about, <laughs> six, about 55 miles, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of minutes, depending upon what time of day it is and what's happening with the traffic. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. No, I used to, I used to travel that road a lot from from london down into brighton and in fact i have a fascinating story to tell and i'm going to tell it very quickly just for you it's the the worst accident i've ever had is on that m23 oh wow yeah it can, it can get bits a bit as you get further south the uh the old version of the road was a bit dodgy well let me tell let me tell you what happened because this is a this is an odd one I was actually hit. It was a lovely sunny day, and it's it's nice actually that road when it's a nice sunny day. Mm. It was a clear. It was a clear road for once. So the last thing on my mind was that I was going to have an accident that day. There was nothing in front of me, nothing behind me. All of a sudden, the car blew up. Wow! Right? Wow! I was when I came to John. I was. I'd found out from the policeman that had come up to the window. I had been hit by a wheel, not a tyre, but a wheel that had come off a car travelling on the opposite carriageway. Wow, gosh. Wow, that's scary. It's scary yeah. that kind of random thing can happen when you're just innocently driving around on a beautiful day. Yeah. So I, I just like everyone to know that mm -hmm. that sort of thing doesn't normally happen in and around Gatwick Airport, but <laughs> it did to but you never on. know but you never know so life's too short is the thing mm. that i took away from that and so you've got to get on and you've got to you've got to make things happen but now we normally ask people on this this program where music started for them um mm. but you you're a writer as much as anything else you've you've, you've written about your, your journey etc so um without going over old ground Tell us where where did where did the urge to start making music come from for you? I'm just a fan. I'm just a fan who um, who lucked into a couple of good bands. Basically, the um, and my job is just to try and not mess it up. Got very lucky to work <laughs> with some very talented people, and my, my main gig is just to try and not not screw it up for them. I um, my dad. Uh, I had vinyl, as you know, as as happens when you grow up in the seventies and eighties, and he had um, Django Reinhardt album, hot jazz album from from interwar France, and he was a massive Stefan Capelli fan, and uh, he was a bit of a violinist himself, 
although kind of retired. And they had the, the Beatles uh, collection that came out in the 70s, the blue and red best of. Oh. And uh, that's what I grew up on. I grew up on Stefan Capelli and the best of the Beatles tracks. And then we also had all the stuff I could afford, afford to buy as a kid was all the sort of crap vinyl, like the, the live in Hamburg, all the stuff that's now deleted, live at the Hollywood Bowl that they've since deleted and didn't include on, on any of the anthology collection. Uh, so I used to listen to those a lot and um, had a neighbour, unironically called Mary Wilson. She was yeah. a massive she was a massive John Lennon fan and um, she wasn't very well. So I used to go and visit her and spend a lot of time in her house listening to her vinyl and she had all the John Lennon solo stuff. She preferred, she preferred, she was, she was very kind of right on sort of hippie mm. lady, I suppose, o- older hippie lady in a way. And, um, uh, and yeah, so that's where that, the love for that came from. And then my first job <clears throat> was working in the, the Sheffield had a civil service office called Manpower Services Commission, which was a big old sort of attempt to spread government out to the regions. And I got a, Oh, I remember uh, the logo for that, the little yeah, black. That's right. Man. So that yeah. head office was in Sheffield, and I got a summer job working there. And my boss was this amazing old guy who just sort of chain smoked and and had <laughs> he had six thousand blues albums at home. So he bought wow. me, he bought me a cassette called Hundred Minutes of the Blues, which I've since lost and then repurchased on Amazon because uh, or maybe eBay because that's such some such great stuff on. And um, just to turn me on to blues music, he bought he bought me this sort of gift, gave me this cassette really. So then I've been in my my first loves are, uh, I guess sort of Django Reinhardt, Stephen mm. Kelly, and Beatles and Lennon and old blues, which which is kind of what led me into folk music and Bob Dylan as well. But I'm I'm very kind of traditionalist like that. I mean I like sixties music really and yeah. Um, after after that, I'm not that asked. I, I grew up as a punk kid. I had older friends at school who uh, <clears throat> who were really into punk in '77, summer '77, '78. They lived on the end of my road, and uh, I was there. I was I would have been 12 at that point or 13. Can't remember. And um, they uh, or maybe 11. Anyway, they. Uh, they, I was their sort of mascot that summer, and they uh, sort of hung around Sheffield with this sort of kid that uh, that was, was too young for punk, but re- really loved it. So that was the, that was my other birth in, in into music. And um, he had he had a great punk collection, Buzzcocks and Pistols albums, and loads of really obscure punk. So like the early Buzzcocks stuff, like Spiral Scratch and things like that. And then off the back of him, I got into craft work. So that's that's my sort of it's sort of sixty stuff, and then sort of creative post punk. Um, my favourite album album was was the Devo, the first Devo album. Oh, we're not wow. going to Devo that. And one of the interesting things about that is produced by Brian Eno, and um, you could play that to students today and tell them it was recorded. Couple of years ago, and they won't know. It's so well recorded, and Devo were pretty. Their early stuff's really not that well recorded. 
but when they got in, they got in with D, with Brian Eno. He just really made them sound amazing. So yeah, that's that's my sort of early early stuff. Really, that kind of is, is Brian Eno um, someone you've kind of followed the the career of? Because for me, he's he's an interesting character. Mm. I, I think in particularly because he's not only made music and produced music, but he's also kind of dissected what the music business is about. Yeah, you know, like he's he's got this, you know, this kind of di- he had this diagram of like the six kind of uh, the, the, the six kind of models of the music. I've got, I wrote I wrote a book a book chapter on Brian Eno. Hang on for a yeah. second, I'll go and get a copy of it. There you go. So lo- live stuff like this just doesn't happen anywhere else on the internet, right? Well, we mentioned a book and and that you know mentioned a topic and there's a book about it. I'm an academic and uh, I work at BIM University in Brighton, and so I've been sort of publishing bits on. I wrote a piece on Robert Johnson, one of my earlier sort of peer-reviewed journal pieces, and uh, I've got to ask. I've got to ask you if you've if you've written on Robert Johnson, what you made of the film Crossroads when it. Came- Oh yeah, I loved all that stuff. I mean, some some of the document. There's a couple of documentaries from the period that were. One was really good, In Search of Robert Johnson. I thought was excellent, and yeah. it was made by the son of the guy who found the original violin and uh, vinyl and made those records. The, the old the old A and R guy, John Hammond, his son mm. made this amazing documentary In Search of Robert Johnson. But the um, that's the Brian Eno book, Oblique Music. It's a collection of academic essays on Eno. And I, I interviewed Debo about working with him, and they didn't go on very well, um, as is often the case when a really good producer shapes up what a what a, a really alternative sounding band want to sound like. I mean, the same thing happened with the Lars, I think, when they made that record with Steve Lillywhite. But um, yeah, they it was really interesting to hear from their side what it was like to work with Brian Eno. They 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 and he he was recording them for free. Uh, Bowie was helping to pay for it, I think. I saw them in a in a little punk club in New York and said, "I'm going to make you famous. You're amazing." And um, they uh, offered to produce their album, and then ended up Devo uh, De- Eno ended up doing it. So there's a chapter in Brian Eno Bleak Music called Eno versus Devo. Eno uh, versus Devo. That's brilliant. And, uh, about how they how they kind of work together or not. Or and not. I, I got to interview. Uh, Jerry Casali, uh, who's a fascinating guy, who was who very radical. He was radicalized as a student because he was at the Kent State shooting when a bunch of uh, Vietnam War protesters were uh, trying to protest against the Vietnam War and fired upon by American National Guard. And that's what radically he, he tells that experience very vividly. And then they got to go and work in a tiny studio in, in Germany. Um, with Eno Craftwork Studio, actually the same Connie Plank Studio mm. in uh, outside of Dusseldorf in the freezing cold February, and had all these disagreements about what should go on there. And that, that first Eno album's got this amazing. I, I sort of tried to come up with a phrase that would then become a, a meme in academic academic world. I call it like an analog underscore. It's got all the way through it. It's got this sort of weird analog Moog synth noises going off from from um, that they put on there and uh mark mothersbaugh 
put them on who who's one of the real creative parts of that band it just it's just a non-stop stream of sort of synthy dribblings yeah and um yeah so fast it was really interesting relationship to unpick a little bit like the dylan lennon one obviously the book is about bob dylan and john lennon i'm always interested in in relationships yeah the eno devo one is a, a Jerry Casale was really interesting to talk to about it. It's a very, very vivid memories, even, you know, 40 years later. And it's such an incredible, Are We Not Men? It's such an incredible sounding album. You know, really made them sound brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So. The, well, the, sometimes the, tension works, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. It's creative tension in the studio. And what, what transpired at the end was just, was, was, was really, really, I mean, often it doesn't. You know, but yeah, it, when those people were what 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 came out at the end, I think was a sort of groundbreaking album. It sounds like virtually no other. And um, the I mean, the, I'm reading I'm reading uh, David Byrne's book, How Much right, okay. Works, which yeah. you you've probably read. Mm. Um, and that you know, there's chapters in that about how he works with Eno, and mm. <laughs> fascinating. You know how he, he he said, well, yeah, yeah, Eno would send me over songs that he that he thought might be songs but they're not songs and you mm. know and they're, they're struggling to be songs and yeah. and the kind of david's approach which is quite quite different in a way yeah. um you know he then kind of not seeing the challenge of that like some some people would have seen that as a real challenge where's the mm. song here but he was just like no i'm i'm just going straight for what I always do, which is I'm going to put a melody out and then I'm going to work it almost reverse engineer this into a song. And they suddenly became songs. But Burns an outstanding artist. I mean, when, um, when I was a, a kid, a kid with my sort of older punk friends, I got, I got turned on to that, to use a hippie phrase and, um, talking head stuff really early. And, uh, uh, yeah, that, that those some of those sort of pre-fame. I mean, they they were well known in the indie world, but sort of pre the sort of the big hits. Some of that stuff, super life during wartime and things, just just incredible, incredible releases. And um, I guess the, the the interesting thing in his book for me is that he writes about music and space really well. So why mm. why music works in in big spaces is fascinating, um, and how slow like how stadium music works i've got another chapter in a book on stadium rock actually funnily enough i'm not just plugging book chapters here but i did a chapter on um plug away it's stadium it's i can't find a copy but i had a hard copy of it kicking on here it's the arena concept yeah. and uh, i interviewed a bunch of people that are, it's another academic book and um i interviewed a bunch of people about what it's like to play in arenas and this was just at the time when um, in ear monitoring was coming in, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, various, I'd obviously sort of talked about my own experiences. Oh, God, I, do you know what? I wish I'd grown up with in ear monitoring, <laughs> yeah. I know, so do I. Although you have to be careful because it can be get really loud really quickly, and you it can be louder than than regular stage monitors. I know a few people who've damaged their hearing through um, really through accidents with in ears, yeah, getting it accidentally. Touching the volume pack, turning it up really loud halfway through a song, and not feeling you can turn it down to the end. I've had that happen a couple of times. In fact, I don't use in ears anymore on stage. I, oh, really? I I've gone back to monitors with earplugs. Yeah, yeah. But, um, 
I there's think... a really great chapter we'll talk about books for, for a minute there's a really mm. good chapter in um the the diaries of steve hogarth the singer with marillion where he talks about in ears right. um and talks about singers taking out their in ears for that moment mm. you know where where you know there's a point where you just need to take it out and mm. live within that moment where it, mm. you're you're hearing the the whole space yeah. yeah and the massive disadvantage of in is is you can't do like the mix doesn't change wherever you stand on the stage and what i love about monitors and just regular earplugs to dampen the sound is that you can walk around so if i want to hear more drums i just take two steps towards the drummer if i want to hear more of me i'll just take two steps towards the amp and um if you want to hear more of the singer i'll just stand over the monitor speaker and that's how music used to be made when they recorded it. They, they'd be like, oh, Louis Armstrong trumpet's really loud. You need to go and stand at the back of the room. And this double bass is really quiet, so I'll put you closer to the to microphone. Even when guitar amps came in, you know, tracks, loads of those great 60s tracks yeah. were, were made with a band in a room with mics moved to or from the, the, the speaker cone. Nothing was close mics. It was all... A few inches well, away or more, depending on how much room spill they purposefully wanted. And then well, that's actually them... the chapter of the David Byrne book that I found the most fascinating was the right. bit where he talks about like Edison and the, the beginning yes. of technology. Yes. And it's like, you know, you literally kind of lined your musicians up in yes. order of loudness away yeah. from the horn. <laughs> yeah. And Armstrong was the, the, the reason why Louis Armstrong is probably the most important musician of the 20th century was he's the first rock god because the trumpet was the loudest instrument. So he he would always be at the back. But there's an interesting thing about the Edison thing with the, the piece I did on Robert Johnson, which is in a, a online peer-reviewed journal called MC, MC Journal, so that's a media culture journal. And it's it's about whether or not, well, it's about how we perceive Robert Johnson, because there's been a huge debate in academic circles about whether or not his music was sped up. Because, right. the yeah, the person who recorded, obviously he's got a sort of high um kind of falsetto howl and incredibly articulate fingering right up the neck on a on a you know an old school acoustic with fat strings and yeah. um uh, and probably well wouldn't be that loud that high up the neck for string and, and it's basically why didn't he sound like john lee hooker right well he, he possibly did and and ah, the, yeah. con the idea is that those early recording did two recording sessions in in hotel rooms in texas and the the engineer who did them all was actually a british engineer who was working over there and um he 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 had these discs which were very expensive to record onto and they only had two and a half minutes aside so he would set the record speed slightly slower in case the artist overran i mean they'd have to arrange it quite carefully so robert johnson could sing as many verses as he wants as a street musician but uh, to cut the songs down to two minutes 30 or however, however long was on the disc and then he'd give himself an extra an extra 20 seconds by reducing the speed by five percent on the machine and um which meant that when you play them back they're naturally fast they're a tone they're a whole tone fast now robert johnson if you play it a tone down sort of five to ten percent down it does sound like john lee hook it sounds like a regular blues player and wow. um johnson played an open g right yeah which yep. is what most of the blues musicians of the time played in spanish they called it 
while all his recordings were in open A. So, so that doesn't make sense. So, it, well, it doesn't, unless he had a capo on the second fret of the guitar. And no one ever saw him with a capo on his guitar. No, well, I, well, he, he, there is the one picture of him. He's got a capo on the second fret of the guitar. Ah. So, so well, one of the two, there's actually three or four pictures. It's, up, there, it's up for debate then. <laughs> it's still up for debate. But I think if you, there's loads of stuff on YouTube. If you listen to Robert Johnson slowed down, um, and it was this guy at work actually in the civil service bought me the Robert Johnson album along with this this cassette tape, which is just a for a young guy, you know, it's a massive. That's just an incredible experience to hear that for the first time. And um, as Bob Dylan writes about in his memoir, the first time he heard Robert Johnson, it was like a ghost walking into the room and um, felt very much the same. I think for any musician who hears that. But it transpires. We've possibly all, all this time been listening to him at the wrong speed. So that was um, a piece I wrote in MC Journal that kind of discusses that whether or not it's correct, we'll probably never know, but kind of discusses the debate. I sort of explain the discourse around it and how it's interesting in itself. And the more you look into Robert Johnson, the more of a mystery he becomes. There's it's our sort of perception of him is kind of fascinating. The more, you, you know, every time we try and find out what happened to him, we find another potential gravesite. So now there's three, maybe four potential gravesites for Robert Johnson, three of which have got actual memorial stones on. And every time there's a, there's a new bit of research done, it's like, oh, no, it turns out he was buried here. Uh, no, no one, at the time of the idea that his music was sped up, no one was, was alive who'd actually heard him. So no one could... There wasn't anybody left that you could go to and go. Did, did this? Is this what it sounded like, or does it sound faster to you? Because, plus, of course, memory is an imperfect thing. From you know, seventy years ago, it's it's always going to be not necessarily verifiable when what any, whatever anybody might you know. Um, yeah. What I can't remember the guy's name, but famously played with him, who who lived quite a long time afterwards. But um, you know, so who who really knows? But that some of the stories around that stuff are fascinating. I did go out to Mississippi to do the sort of blues graveyard tour. And I did went you? To, I went to John, two of Johnson's graves, uh, and that was the, <laughs> that was the weekend of Hurricane Katrina. Oh no! I was the only person on the road. Me and my partner at the time, we were driving in a rental car. Uh, rain. I was like, it's, I'm from England. I know wind and rain. Uh, you're all like. Not like that, you don't. No, I know. It was a big, one of the biggest mistakes. Talk about car crashes. We were driving down the road, and it, the rain was so heavy, it just turned into a river, and you could you could see the tire tracks and in the river of water behind, you know, in the in the in the rearview mirror. And then the power lines that they run by the side of the road were all sign waving in the wind, and one one broke off. And so I just remember this power line scything across the road in front of us blue sparks everywhere and the as it so it's road. like that film twister in it with the it was it, that goes yeah <laughs> my partner wasn't very pleased at the time but i did i got to see a bunch of graves that that day and it was very um very atmospheric um, now i'm just yeah. going to take you back to like you know sleeper hitting the big time mm. and stuff because i was in a band at that sort of time and you know, we were we were sort of touring around the, the northeast, making a noise. Um, so you know that you were a band that I was always on my radar, always always enjoyed the music. 
So what's interesting is when you think about the bands that came out at that time, a lot of the, the a lot of the rhetoric from the bands at that time was was always about music that was that was quite close, I suppose, to that time. And yet, actually, most of the musicians I've talked to from that time now, now that that's all over, will now go. Actually, I really I was really into this from way back there. Whereas at the time, there was there was something about that time. Do you not think that where people were their reference points were so. There was almost people were scared to kind of reference stuff further in the past, almost like we are the new breed of this. Well, I, I don't know. I think for us, our, our breakthrough was the tour with Blur, supporting yeah. them. We were we had a, like a number one indie single, and they were obviously smashing it with Park Life, and um, they were sellout venues, and you could just tell like there was a sea change happening in music, and this whole sort of British thing was going to happen. Kurt Cobain had just committed suicide, so it was a new, it was a new window of opportunity for something. And um, uh, so you could just tell this, this, this whole thing was was gonna was gonna break massively. Um, I mean, I remember Blur doing Chepstow Empire, which is not a massive London venue, but it was so rammed that they ran a, a line from the the balcony to the stage desk at, at the back of the stalls because they had some extra PA in the wow in the uh in 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 the in the balcony either side of it just a little bit of piezo for some extra guitar effects radiohead were doing the same thing at the same time so they ran a line from the balcony the sound desk is right under the balcony i remember people jumping up and down because we watched blur every night on that tour because they were just amazed they were on fire and people were jumping up and down on the balcony and the i remember the line going slack and then taut and slack <laughs> and then taut, in time with the music well thinking, oh my god you're just waiting for it to go <laughs> well you kind of felt like oh, it's an old building but surely it can uh, it can put up with a with a few hundred kids jumping up and down on top of it but then you were also thinking well i suspect they've possibly oversold the venue i mean we had that with a few sleeper shows on the smart tour which was you know we booked quite small venues and then suddenly we had the top five album and we did a couple where, well, I mean, I remember crowd surfing at the, the lab mill in Sheffield and getting right to the, right to the sound desk, turning around and sort of swimming back across the crowd. But did that help you in a way? Probably, probably shouldn't be able to get this far crowd surfing at a, a, even at a sold out venue. Yeah. But, Um, But actually selling out little venues like that, when, when things are about, when things are changing is actually really good for you isn't it well it's absolutely what you want yeah 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 yeah. and and i remember tour on that tour my uh i'm from sheffield originally my mum and my aunt were at the sound desk and i i got i sort of crowd surfed across the crowd got to the sound desk could see them stood at the back it's sort of behind the barrier next to the sound engineer and my mum hadn't been looking for some reason and my, my aunt dug her in the ribs and went look at her jonathan and i was like just on this on the ground like waving at my mum, and then swam back which you shouldn't be able to do unless the venue's massively oversold i could obviously that's a serious allegation against the level so that's just my impression of it and it could all be completely <laughs> misremembered and i'm sure the level have never oversold a gig in in their honorable 40 years of existence and i would hope that they will continue to exist because the venue's now under threat so that's just an anecdote it may or may not be true yeah. but um yeah the the it it was just a time of real energy and i think the media 
jumped onto that but but problem younger artists have today is there's no kind of single media source there's no gatekeeper there's no there's no kind of umpire to to decide what's what scenes what and what's happening where the media and music's become so fractured um mm. by different avenues i mean i get most of my music today off of twitter and youtube and people sharing ideas and and spotify and there's, i mean there's more songs being put on spotify than you can listen to in a lifetime pretty much every day so yeah, there's a real element of oversupply in the market to a certain extent so i was going to bring you back to that though because one of the mm. things you said right near the beginning was you know you were talking about an album you can't get anymore mm. right and you know for me that's one of the reasons why i i, I start to see a reinterest in in physical format as mm. well uh people wanting to to buy something that is potentially different than than you'll get on spotify or any of the digital platforms mm. but also you know i've as I've gone back and I've kind of gone, oh, I, I need to get that that I listened to back in the 80s or in the 90s again. And I, you, you trawl through the digital metropolis and you find, oh, it's not there. You suddenly go, well, oh, I really want that physical thing. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever, you know, if you've, mm. if you've been looking and you, you do the whole eBay thing or whatever other other mm. uh, market platforms are available. But sometimes, you know, some of the prices of things, you think, well actually <laughs> i'm not surprised that that's going up in price because it that's that's the last version of it yeah you know? um, and uh, i guess a lot of people put stuff put stuff like that upon on youtube as well so there was a couple of albums that weren't available that i was trying to reach that and or they'll they'll put the um put the files up on a file sharing service or something i suppose it depends whether or not you want you actually want the hard copy anymore i'm not that i mean i'm gonna get rid of a bunch of books this year because i've just got too many and they're all in digital copy on my e-reader anyway so i i don't i feel the same with albums i got a box of vinyl down there but i don't live in a massive place so i don't know if i can afford the space and i don't know personally if i'm going to dig a record out when it's actually on my computer hard drive or streamable on youtube anyway yeah. I, I think we're a certain generation that's tied to the idea of music in a physical form and i'm not sure that's going to last forever uh yeah. which is which is a shame because we, we've got best of both worlds at the moment you can get music or a book like that this is my late this is my actual book dylan lennon marks and garden having this like as a thing just means the world you can get it digitally but having this it's like oh my god and it feels a lot like when a, when a record comes out and you get a cd of it or ever or a vinyl that you've made it just means it just means you can physically hold it and i felt well, that a lot as a fan as well and yeah today, humans, today humans we, are a tactile we're hum, humans yeah. are tactile right and so we, yeah. we, we like to physically hold on to something but and we live in the best of worlds you can look stuff up as well like you can you know you yeah. don't have to wait for something to be physically available shipped to you you can just you, we could mention a, a book or an album and somebody can click on spotify and stream it or go on go on uh you know a digital retailer such as for example amazon and just buy the digital copy and you can be reading it in 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 under a minute which is incredible really 
So we do have the best of both worlds, but ultimately I think convenience will will win out. And uh, if you think about the cut, you know, the, as a as an art, as an artist, there are some things you got con- you're aware of that probably as a consumer you're not, which is that making stuff and shipping it, and particularly vinyl is a right pain in the ass. Like vinyl's got to be pressed. And- oh put in a box and sent and not broken. I mean, the returns contract on most record contracts is like used to be 10% or 15% just for breakages. Uh, and books too. Like I've had a bunch of these. I bought a number of these to send just to send as Christmas presents. I'm like, oh no, this one's got like a, it's got a scratch on the top. I'm not going to, this is going to be my, this, you know, my edit copy for if I ever do a second edition or whatever, but like, oh no, I've, I've, actually, I've signed it and I've bloody creased the page on it. So it's like physical. Well, if artifact. you get any more copies like that, John, you can send one to me. That's that's fine. Physical <laughs> art, physical <laughs> artifacts are uh, much more difficult to curate and sell. Like they've got to be in stock. You've got to print the number that you're going to sell. What you know, if you if you're making a record or or a or a book and you press 2000 and you only sell a thousand as a young band today, that's you've made a loss there. So, but then again, you press a thousand, you sell a thousand and you've got a huge opportunity cost because you could have sold three. So the, the physical production of stuff, whilst it has a glamour as a consumer and whilst the, whilst this is like my, I just love being able to have this as a, as a writer, this is Cambridge University Press. I didn't have to do all this stuff. They did that. Um, if if with the Sleeper album, like we've, we've done some reissues, I mean, Louise and Andy take care of most of that, and it drives them up the wall because it's so hard to get it right. Is the pressing good enough? Is there a crease on the, on the box that's like, oh, no, it's another one we can't sell or whatever, and suddenly your margins diminish. And as a, as a young as a young band that can get really tough making that work so there is something to be said for the digital world of just streaming and downloading and whatnot but at the same time having something physical yeah that's pretty it is pretty special too so i can see both sides i think it's a shame that the physical element will will probably eventually go just because the digital is more convenient well i i think i think the biggest shame with it isn't actually necessarily the physical aspect of it per se because um and i think it's interesting because again david byrne talks about that in his book he talks about that you know how the 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 power exchange changed and and how the money exchange changed because suddenly you know recording costs virtually zero right Mm. because you can do it in your home whereas you used Mm. to have to record the studio distribution costs virtually zero because you can now just upload it you know you didn't have to pay you know so most of those cost elements disappear i think the the biggest disappointment for some artists and i'll go to um i was watching jules holland the the other week and it was uh it was the album um world album day and he was interviewing uh paul heaton and and Mm. jackie abbott about uh about the fact that it was well down day and he was asking what's the importance of an album still to an artist um it'd be interesting to get your take on that but uh, you know paul was saying really it's the fact that it is a snapshot yeah of, it's a body of work it's a collection body of, of work 
it's a collection of stuff where you're at for that particular i mean the album cycles normally like a year and a half two years is that's where you're at at that moment and it's it's you know 10 songs that represent that stage of your life and it has a beginning and a middle and an end and you 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 decide the track listing so it's got a narrative arc and and a uh you know a, ideally a nice a nice visual representation of, of what it stands for and um so it's very different to sort of drip releasing songs like people do now or, and even when that is done you know you think think about something like lemonade by beyonce that's really a concept album it, you could argue pretty much every album's a concept album albums aren't really abstract collections of songs they they generally have a theme even if it's not actually articulated in the way like 2112 or whatever is a famous concept or sergeant peppers you know they've got or you know something even even more blatant unless it's a greatest hits collection and in which case it's and then it's yeah but then the concept behind that album is it so greatest hits hits, yeah it's 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 Uh, photographs of their career really yeah Yeah, that's the the concept but i'm guessing what i'm saying there is the one disappointment, I suppose, that comes with the the digital age is the fact that yeah, the, the listener doesn't buy into that album thing mm. anymore. And now I suppose yeah. it's one of the reasons why I suppose bands are trying to hold on to uh, and 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 some of us are trying to hold on to albums, if you like, mm. is it's just that remembering that the importance of listening to a whole album you know remember when you were a kid and like old people talked about the music from the war and big band era that's what albums are like to young people today yeah like it's, exactly. an, it's an anachronism it, I, I went to see a big band concert when i was like 18 so it was amazing it was like 40 people in a room all playing like you know uh tunes from the war it was actually pretty good and uh or not you know similar with an orchestra but you know they they need government funding largely to continue so it's that uh i think i think we're possibly hanging on to something that isn't going to necessarily survive us i don't want to don't want to i don't want to give rain on anyone's parade (laughs) but so i i try and be a little bit i you know try and i'm a hoarder so i've got to keep what whatever i've got i've got physically i've got to keep to the minimum yeah but I, I, what what you're saying is absolutely right. In a way, that whole period where everything was about the album, you know, and, mm. and especially when you look in the, like the, the the 70s or whatever, where there was all of that excess of money around, you know, albums and we, band band spent years in the recording studio and millions recording. But we we invest we invest physical things with magical properties, right? So yeah. You have you, this physical thing exists. It, it contains the music. I mean, if you're streaming, you haven't you haven't got that material object that, that carries the songs with it. We, we are there's an element possibly of evolutionary psychology in that sort of artifact worship, whether it's a, a record or a CD that's imprinted with this magical uh, stuff that makes you feel nice. And we, we do that with other objects. There's a famous psychological experiment where they have a a ballpoint pen and a and a jumper and they they tell these postgraduate students that the ballpoint pen was used by einstein to write his first iteration of e equals mc squared or fountain pen i guess it would be and they pass it around and everyone's like holding it like it's you know a, a relic the bone of christ or something and then the jumper they say would belong to somebody like fred west or whoever and no one will even open the bag let alone touch it or put it on 
And of course, neither of these things is true, but we invest physical artifacts with tremendous power. And, and I think there's something quite ancient in that within us. Um, yeah. well, my no. favorite physical artifact story is my, I scratched the Imagine piano. I can't remember if we've, if I've shared that one ever, but- um, You did the, what? Well, I'm obviously a massive John Lennon fan and a Bob yeah. Dylan fan. And right, this is the first dual biography of these two people. Yeah. And uh, when uh, when Louise and Andy from Sleeper were doing some recording in London, I was spending some time in Los Angeles and uh, I, I would come back periodically and stay at, stay in their house, actually. And um, they, uh, they were working in George Michael's studio yeah. and he bought the Imagine Piano. So to save it for posterity, 1.4 million it cost, and um, it would have gone to America. And it's an upright. It's a brown Steinway upright piano. It's not the white one in the video. And it's the one that the whole album was recorded on, some great piano tracks on that record. Um, and uh, it was being stored at George Michael's studio, and he was sampling it, every key, and then it was going to go off to some museums now under in a museum in Liverpool. And... Andy was like, we've got to go and have a look at this piano. George isn't in today. So we jumped in a taxi and I got a, in those days, you would buy a, a disposable camera. Yeah. So I grabbed a disposable camera and we were like, flash, flash, you know, picture, 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 loads of pictures of this piano. And I was pausing, posing by it. And I had on um, basically a, a denim jacket with a metal button. And the very last picture, we all gathered around it and I hugged it. And I went, this is the most amazing day of my life. And I, I sort of stroked it or tried to just like pet it across the top lid of the piano and about an elbow length in, I, I put a massive scratch with a metal button of my jacket right across the top of the piano. And, how, did you, uh, how did you square that away with George? Well, I said to the engineer who was helping Lou and Andy record their stuff, I was like, uh, what do we do? I said, I've just got to tell him. I've just got to tell him what I've done. And he's like, no, I'll be so stoned. He won't even know. And the piano does have quite a lot of marks on it. It's got like cigarette marks from when John Lennon would leave cigarettes. Yeah, yeah people used to do cigarettes burning and they'd burn out on the side of the piano, presumably while I was working out some tune. And so we just left it there. It's still there. If you go and see it, it's under a glass case today, so no other idiot can can touch it. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's about an elbow length in, right hand side of the piano as you look at it on the lid. I love Big that. Scratch. It's about that long, right across the top of the piano lid. You really need that on the plaque, don't you? Yeah. Well, now, <laughs> Mark, now George, marks by marks by now George is sadly yeah now George yeah. sadly passed away. I can tell the story. I I kept quite well. I told a few students as an anecdote, but that's, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, is that that's, is that is that the only other famous person's piano that you played with, or was it? I think that's pretty. Much, I met Brian Wilson a couple of times. That was quite entertaining. The first time I met Brian Wilson was in Los Angeles in a club, and um, we were working in a. Uh, I was DJing in this little club when I was living in LA, and it was a sort of British music club. And he came in. The the the, the owners knew him and brought him in just for some. I think there was a, another English band were there as well. They'd been playing in the town. So I was living there at the time and they were playing. So they all the British bands would come down. Rodney Bingenheimer, if you know that character, he'd come down. So I think maybe Rodney brought down Brian Wilson. That's right, like, because he wanted to meet the English band that were in town at the day, of that day, which was Rialto. And so I met Rialto and then we met Brian. And um, 
Brian had the softest handshake of anybody I'd ever met, but it was like it just it was just an incredible meeting. And then lo and behold, uh, three years later, I'm working in Brighton in, in what what is now BIM University, where I where I teach, and I'm getting phone calls at my desk from a student, a particular student who I know is a bit of a toker. He's uh, he's like calling me, going, "Yeah, Brian Wilson's in the laundrette opposite your office." I'm like, "Dude, he's really not." I think you need to slow down a little bit. And they call me back. Look, I'm sure that's Brian Wilson. Our office was was not in a glamorous, it was a back street in Brighton, in Kemptown. I'm sure that's Brian. I'm like, mate, honestly, just take it easy. I think you're hallucinating. So anyway, eventually, <laughs> after the third phone call, I, I popped pop down from the office to have a look. And sure enough, there's Brian Wilson doing his um, tour smalls in, in the laundrette on... Uh, at, at, at the top of St James Street in Kemptown, so I I popped in, and I said, Brian, hi. You won't remember me, but we met in Los Angeles three years ago. And he shook my hand again, and he said, I, I remember you. And I said, No, honestly, Brian, you don't remember me. It was a club. It was a very brief meeting, you know. And he's he's insisting, No, I remember you. I remember you. And then his manager comes up, puts his hand across my shoulder, and goes, You need to leave, sir. And, and I'm going, no, I have met him. And Brian's going, yeah, I remember this guy. And I'm going to Brian, no, you don't remember me, Brian, but we did we did meet before. Oh, so I, bless. I was suddenly in this art in, moment in a laundrette in a back street in Kemptown trying to convince Brian Wilson that, no, he doesn't remember me, whilst also trying to convince his manager that, yes, I have actually met him, but, no, he doesn't remember me. That's and, the uh, best story yeah, ever. And then, he, and then he went on his merry way with a little bag of fresh... Uh, tour smalls and I, I went back to the office very nice indeed very nice indeed the, the only the only famous person's piano that i have played was tori amos oh that's pretty cool she's very picky about her pianos yeah and she's very picky about her pianos but i was yeah. doing sound for her at Superb. one of the first gigs she did in the uk um and she was drenched as a rat so she needed yeah. <laughs> she needed to get changed and she said do you mind just sound checking my piano Oh uh, wow, that's an that's a great honor because so that, that was very I know nice she's she's very very careful about her keyboards. She's very yeah, that's that's she must and have rightly so because they're quite expensive. Yes, yes. She must have had great trust in you. Well she was stupid, but it was it was <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. And what was really funny about it, my friend, was that it was quite a small club and I was sat there just tonking away and and people started coming in yeah. <laughs> and got a little ripple of applause from Super. the audience which was hilarious uh, so it's a little bit of jazz for you <laughs> fantastic fantastic <laughs> oh, lovely story listen it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you uh you need to get off i need to get off we we've all busy things yeah to i've got one I've plug got, of the book i was gonna say i do have a i've got a couple of playlists on spotify the first is the sort of guitar songs that i love that influenced me including i think some some of that early devo stuff we were talking about and then public place and the second playlist is songs that i write about in 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 this the sort of story of bob dylan and john lennon's relationship and um it's not i'm not a marxist it just looks at their politics and i'm not religious but it looks at their different belief systems really and um so there's two, if anybody is interested in listening to some tunes, there's the every song mentioned in the book, and there's some quite obscure Dylan stuff in there. 
um, and some interesting Lennon stuff like when he he wrote songs taking the piss out of Bob Dylan, who's a massive hero to him, and then he, he wrote some parody Dylan songs that eventually came out. They're all they're all in that playlist, and um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, so if anybody does want to hear some tunes, that that's that's the place to go if you look for John Stewart on on Spotify. Yeah, you've got a little link tree, haven't you? And then and then people can yeah. Find if it you on go that. to yeah, John John Sleeper on the link tree, the, the, there's links to the Spotify there. Go go have a listen. Uh, there's a book. So uh, you know, Christmas is coming up. What can I say? That's a great. It's twenty great quid for an academic book. It's twenty quid, which is really cheap. It Cambridge University price. Press, so it's a proper publisher, and it's hardback. So it's no, great. It's, it's no, a perfect no. present for the Dylan or Beatles fan. Of course it is. There's, 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 you know, that's no money at all. Twenty so, yeah. quid for a hardback, like really rigorous publisher. I've got. <laughs> I, I could leave you with a good um, Robbie Williams anecdote if you want one. Go for it. So as we, when I was in LA, I got to play on a Katie Lang album, which was a great privilege. And we were in a very mm. cool studio. and Great voice. Everybody was, all the staff were cleaning up like mad. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, Rob, Robbie Williams is coming in later today. And they're like washing all the cups and everything and hoovering. And I'm like, Robbie Williams? I've met Robbie Williams. And I'm like, yeah, Robbie Williams is coming in. And uh, so everyone's clear, all the like polishing all the surfaces. And Robbie Williams is coming in. Robbie, And I was like, blimey, it's not like, Okay, Robbie Williams, but and and the, there's a very quiet knock at the door while they're all busy cleaning up, and um, I open the door of the studio just off sunset, and it's uh, it's Robin Williams. I've misheard. It's Robin Williams, and he stood there like, "Hello." He's the nicest man that I ever met. He's uh, he, just a genuinely nice. I was like, I was like, Robin Williams. Right, okay. That is actually uh, something else, isn't it? Took right? him in, sat him down, made him a cup of tea, and it, I can I can confirm that Robin Williams was a genuinely nice bloke who would chat to anybody who, uh, who and give him the time of day. And uh, yeah, what what a, what a comedy hero that guy was! It yeah. was unbelievable. Sad, sad loss, sad loss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, useless at singing angels, though. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, Anytime. Keep in touch. Okay, yes, please. Thanks. Uh, do subscribe to this so that you know uh, what's going on next time. There's a, a video. Uh, more music from other people coming soon. But until now, it's been John Stewart, wonderful guest today. Bye for now. <laughs>